everyone. It's uh, very nice to see such a full room for our session. Uh, so we are reconvening our Caribbean seminar series, uh, which will continue in this term, spring term, and into the summer term. Uh, and all of the future events are on our website. So I'm really delighted to introduce Grace Carrington, who's a doctoral research student at LSE. Um, coming up to the, the very near the end of her doctorate, I believe. Uh, so Grace, as I said, is based at uh, LSE, and her current research compares decolonization in the Francophone and the Anglophone Caribbean, with a focus on the relationship between identity and politics in those territories that did not choose independence. She has an MA in French and Spanish from the University of Edinburgh and an MSc in Empires, Colonialism and Globalization from LSE. And she has a forthcoming article on Guadeloupe's independence movement in the 1960s, uh, which will be coming out in the Journal of Romance Studies, date TPC. Uh, so we're very much looking forward to the talk on decolonization, divided independence, nationalism and assimilation in the non-sovereign Caribbean. So welcome, Grace. Hi everyone, um, thank you for coming um, and thank you to Kate and the organisers for putting this together. Um, I've got a slight sore throat but I'm hoping uh, it won't affect the talk today. So today I plan to present some of the key arguments of my PhD thesis, which uh, looks at 20th century decolonization in Caribbean islands that never became independent. So as I study four different territories, uh, I'll give you some of the historical background and context, um, as well as a range of examples from across those four territories. Rather than go into minute detail, um, about uh, political developments in every territory, I'm going to focus on the broader arguments and themes of my PhD thesis. And um, as it suggests here, I study the period from 1945 to 1980, uh, covering the main era of 20th century decolonization. So firstly, looking at this map, um, I'm going to be talking about four territories. So Martinique and Guadeloupe, uh, which are overseas departments of France. So uh, they have the same status as a department in mainland France. Um, they're part of the EU, they use the euro, and citizens there vote in the French presidential elections. Um, and the other two island groups I study, as you can see, um, are the Cayman Islands and the British Virgin Islands. Uh, they're, overseas, they're British overseas territories. Um, they have their own parliaments, but a British governor appointed by the Queen can intervene in local affairs. Um, citizens of the BVI uh, and Cayman are British citizens, so they have uh, the right of abode and right to work in the UK. So turning to the arguments uh, of my thesis, my main issue with the way that non-sovereign territories are usually discussed uh, is that they're often presented as these strange anomalies uh, that never achieved full independence. Uh, their political status can be explained away by uh, the fact that apparently no one there ever really wanted independence anyway. And so they often get left out when people discuss decolonization uh, because they don't appear to fit with that conventional narrative uh, of colonies becoming post-colonial independent nation states. However, today I will argue that these territories are very much part of the history of decolonization in the 20th century. They developed in the international post-war context of the Cold War, 
uh, and in increasing anti-colonial nationalism. And they embody that idea of islands as places of both separation and connection, in that they were closely connected to many of the developments taking place in the Caribbean region and globally. Um, and yet at other times, decisions were very particular to the local circumstances. And I'll highlight during the paper where these instances of separation and connection are most apparent. So if we look at this map of the Caribbean, you can see that there are actually more non-independent uh, states in the region than there are independent ones. Uh, so you have the uh, US uh, ones, Puerto Rico, US Virgin Islands, uh, the Dutch territories like Aruba and Curaçao, um, and then of course the British and French territories. So clearly these different forms of political status are crucial for our understanding of the Caribbean region. And then at a global level, political scientist David Resvani um, has stated that there are over 50 non-independent and partially independent states, depending on your definition. So this really challenges the idea that we've become a world of independent nation-states. Uh, furthermore, and this is particularly the case if you look at the Caribbean, independent post-colonial states are subject to all kinds of challenges to their sovereignty. Ultimately, then, a better understanding of decolonisation in these non-independent territories allows for, for a clearer picture of decolonisation, sorry, a clearer picture of how decolonisation developed uh, around the world and presents a more complex narrative of decolonisation. And this more complex picture allows the, uh, acknowledges the differing spheres of influence that um, colonial powers continue to maintain in the so-called post-colonial world. So today I'm going to give a brief uh, overview of the history of each of the territories um, and then I'll discuss three key factors um, that were really influential in the way that they decolonised. So uh, firstly the early changes to political status which took place um, after the Second World War, um, the role of elites in local politics and thirdly um, I'll discuss independence movements and colonial intervention in decolonisation. So firstly, I'd like to look at the historical background um, of the French Antilles, so Martinique and Guadeloupe. They were colonised by France during the monarchical imperial age of the 17th century. Um, the colonial encounter wiped out and displaced the indigenous population, uh, leaving a plantation-based society uh, based on slavery with a small minority of wealthy white plantation owners, uh, known as the Beke, who controlled the majority of industry and the economy. A key difference I'd like to highlight in the histories of Guadeloupe and Martinique occurred during the French Revolution. So whereas the Beke managed to maintain control in Martinique uh, because the British protected the institution of slavery on the island, in Guadeloupe most of the white planters fled uh, or were killed and slavery was abolished. So, uh, despite attempts of resistance leaders, uh, Louis Delgrès, Solitude, and Joseph Ignace, um, and you can see statues of them here, um, these are current statues that are in Guadeloupe. Uh, despite their attempts, Napoleonic France reoccupied Guadeloupe in 1802 um, and reinstated slavery for another 46 years. Um, and this split during the revolution made the societies uh, of Martinique and Guadeloupe quite different, um, and it really altered the way constructions of race operated within society. So turning to the Cayman Islands, 
Um, permanent settlement in Cayman uh, did not occur until the 18th century. The islands were administered through Jamaica, um, and from 1863 onwards, they became an official dependency of Jamaica. And this altered Caymanian experiences of British colonialism, uh, because everything was managed via Jamaica, um, and so Britain was a more distant colonial presence. Um, and the large plantations that were common in the French Antilles and elsewhere uh, in the Caribbean uh, did not exist in the Cayman Islands. This has led some historians to suggest that Cayman was not a slave society. Um, however, it's important to remember um, that the industries in Cayman of um, turtle fishing, uh, timber, um, and small uh, cotton plantations uh, were still uh, reliant on the labour of enslaved people. After abolition in 1834, economic hardship um, and uh, the presence of a much larger white population than many other islands led to a certain degree of integration um, and less strict racial hierarchies um, than were present in much of the rest of the Caribbean at the time. Nevertheless, by the 20th century, a white merchant oligarchy uh, who became wealthy through uh, controlling the shipping industry dominated uh, both the political and economic uh, arenas and this gave them a huge influence over public opinion and political decisions. So, uh, turning to the British Virgin Islands, um, a plantation economy based on cotton and sugar began in the 17th century in the Virgin Islands, uh, but was only prosperous, prosperous between 1756 and 1783. Uh, due to trade links with North American colonies during the American War of Independence. The BVI had quite a different post-emancipation history from many other islands in the Caribbean. Um, after emancipation in 1834, increasingly punitive taxation on cattle uh, led to an uprising in 1853, um, in which uh, cane fields and sugar works across Tortola, which is the main island um, you can see in the centre there, um, these sugar works in cane fields were demolished during the uprising. Most white plantation owners left the islands, um, and by 1901, the census listed two white people uh, living in the BVI permanently. So, formerly enslaved people were then um, able to acquire land in the second half of the 19th century, um, as land became available on these abandoned estates. Therefore, black BVI islanders um, had effectively ousted the white plantation owners uh, from the islands, and British influence, uh, which was in the form of a British uh, commissioner, was relatively weak. Another important aspect of Virgin Island history, and um, you can see quite clearly on this map, um, is this close relationship with the US Virgin Islands, uh, formerly the Danish West Indies, um, and this is the US Virgin Islands here. Uh, by the 20th century, the two island groups were described as forming one unit economically and geographically, um, and this would have a huge impact on political decisions in the BVI. Looking at my first theme, uh, which is the timing and the early changes to political status, uh, this is a really key aspect to understanding colonisation. So, uh, looking at the British Virgin Islands, in 1945, uh, they were a present presidency governed through the colony of the Leeward Islands in Antigua. 
Um, this meant that few decision-making powers were held in the BVI itself. As plans were being finalised in the mid-1950s for the establishment of the West Indies Federation, BVI looked towards Britain rather than the rest of the Caribbean uh, for a chance at greater political representation. So in 1956, the Leeward Islands defederated in preparation uh, for joining the West Indies Federation. The uh, government of the BVI instead chose to become a crown colony uh, with a link to Britain, and so a direct link to the Secretary of State for the Colonies. Legislative powers, uh, which were formerly held in the Leeward Islands, uh, were then the responsibility of the administrator in the British Virgin Islands in conjunction with the BVI Executive Council. So, in the following two years, local politicians were keen to retain these newfound powers, um, and they made it clear that the BVI wished to remain a Crown colony, rather than joining the West Indies Federation. Fear of giving up these decision-making powers uh, to an external organisation in the Caribbean was a crucial factor in this choice to remain out of the Federation. Some BVI Islanders saw their relationship with the US Virgin Islands as really a valuable economic resource uh, that they were unwilling to open up to the rest of the Eastern Caribbean. As a result, the BVI never joined the Federation. Once the West Indies Federation broke up in 1962, uh, BVI uh, looked towards the American Virgin Islands rather than the rest of the Caribbean um, in terms of envisaging its future. And political debates at this time really focused around the possibility of amalgamation with the US Virgin Islands, uh, though this never transpired. Likewise, in the French Antilles, um, the islands cemented their relationship with co the colonial metropole in the aftermath of the Second World War. So in 1946, Martinique and Guadeloupe chose to integrate into the French Republic in theory to give them the same status uh, as a department of metropolitan France. I don't have time here to go into uh, the details of the decision to departmentalise, uh, but there is extensive literature uh, on departmentalisation. Um, in English, Kristen Childers' recent book, which is called um, Seeking Imperialism's Embrace, looks at both the decision and also the aftermath and the impact of departmentalisation. The point I'd really like to make about departmentalisation is that, that if you step back and situate it within the context of the 1940s, uh, it's really not as anachronistic as it, most, uh, as it might appear at first. It's important to remember the diverse range of uh, debates and political futures that were envisaged um, in the 1940s and 1950s in colonies around the world. So uh, the works of Frederick Cooper and Gary Wilder have highlighted this, um, showing that in this period, uh, during the earlier stages of the colonisation, both uh, Caribbean and uh, many African leaders envisaged uh, freedom from colonial rule through some form of uh, decentralised federation of former colonies uh, governed democratically by the French Republic. So in this light, departmentalisation um, is very much in keeping with some of the political debates of that era. Furthermore, the uh, political leaders who sought departmentalisation did so in an optimistic attempt um, to solve the major social and economic issues of the post-war Antilles. Crucially, the black and mixed-race middle class in Martinique and Guadeloupe 
associated the Beke, the white elite, uh, with most of the ills of colonialism, whereas they saw the French Republic as really embodying um, the ideas of liberté, égalité, fraternité. Departmentalisation then was a conscious choice um, to integrate politically, socially and economically into France in order to ease poverty and inequality. Once the French Antilles had become departments in 1946, it was far more difficult to argue in favour of independence as the islands were so much more, uh, so closely integrated into the French Republic. Um, French assimilationist policies uh, that had encouraged Antillians to see France as the solution to their troubles increased after departmentalisation uh, was implemented. And I think the approach of French Caribbean politicians uh, to France and to departmentalisation is really typified um, by the Guadeloupian communist Gertie Archimède. Um, I've got a picture of her here. Um, she represented the Communist Party in the National Assembly from uh, 1946 to 1951, um, and she uh, ardently supported the move to departmentalise. She was a pioneer of women's rights. Um, she was the first female lawyer in Guadeloupe, and she also founded the Union of Guadeloupian Women. Though firmly anti-colonial, Archimède viewed France as the defender of women's rights uh, after it had extended uh, women's suffrage um, to Antillians in 1945. Through her role as political director of the Guadeloupian communist journal, Let un Seul, uh, which we've got here, um, she was the political director in the 1960s and 1970s, and she promoted an anti-colonial but firmly pro-French ideology throughout. She had connections with international feminist and communist groups, um, and she even housed and defended, and defended um, the US civil rights activist Angela Davis, uh, pictured here. Davis had had her passport confiscated um, after she arrived in Guadeloupe on a boat from Cuba, in 1969, um, and it was Archimède who uh, defended her in court. So Archimède was part of this global network um, of anti-colonial black activists, but she was nonetheless uh, firmly devoted to remaining French. Crucially, like so many Antillean politicians, she adopted this seemingly contradictory stance um, of being anti-colonial without advocating independence. These post-war political changes that I've outlined uh, were instrumental in subsequent attempts to, to uh, negotiate greater autonomy um, or push for independence. Departmentalisation and crown colony status meant that any future political negotiations would be made uh, from a position of closeness uh, to uh, the colonial power. Um, so I'd like to talk now um, about um, the role of elites in local politics. As yet, um, I've not discussed the Cayman Islands and their relationship to the West Indies Federation. Despite certain reservations, Cayman uh, did join the Federation as a dependency of Jamaica. Uh, and then once the Federation dissolved, Cayman chose to split from Jamaica and, just like the British Virgin Islands, become a crown colony um, of Britain. So on the surface, this would appear to suggest uh, that perhaps at the time there was no real appetite for independence. However, an analysis of how these political decisions were made uh, reveals that the, situa the situation was really far less straightforward. 
As I mentioned earlier, an elite group of white merchant families controlled both the economy and the legislative, legislative assembly for um, much of the 20th century. The power of the merchant class created a kind of vertical societal stru structure where most Caymanians were dependent on them uh, for goods, supplies, and also if they wished to travel abroad. As the West Indies Federation began to separate in 1961, the conservative Caymanian elite did not like the idea of being a dependency of an independent socialist Jamaica, and they really feared anything that might disrupt their political hegemony. So, despite the fact that there were a variety of options available to the Cayman Islands at the time, the British Commissioner uh, pushed two options and put those two options forward to the Cayman Islands. Um, and those were internal self-government under an independent Jamaica, or, on the other hand, crown colony status with Britain. And the merchant elite campaigned across the Cayman Islands to generate support for this crown colony status um, and closer ties to Britain. Members of the Legislative Assembly were presented with these two options. Um, and then this crucial decision was decided by the visiting governor of Jamaica, quote, at the longest and loudest clap of hands, end quote. So essentially what happened was um, there was um, an anti-Jamaica speech that gained louder applause, um, and then there was a pro-Jamaica speech and that had less applause, um, and so that's how this huge decision was decided. And uh, this was obviously a highly irregular and undemocratic way to decide such an important political decision about their future. Furthermore, shortly after um, this decision, the National Democratic Party, the NDP, uh, won a majority in the 1962 elections, and this was on a platform of pushing for greater self-government. The NDP was the first uh, major political party in the Cayman Islands, and it drew members from across Caymanian society. So its more populist appeal um, really alarmed the merchant elite uh, who sought to undermine it during the election campaign. Nonetheless, uh, despite the campaign of the merchants, the NDP uh, gained a majority in the elections, um, and this really suggested perhaps new possibilities for Caymanian politics. However, the commissioner at the time, Jack Rose, um, who had an ongoing feud with the leader of the NDP, Ormond Panton, deliberately blocked uh, attempts at self-government and prevented the NDP from gaining power in the Executive Council. And it was this that was really crucial because um, having power in the Executive Council would have given the NDP uh, the power to possibly push through, um, if not independence, but greater self-government. So as Commissioner, Rose was responsible for choosing the three nominated members to the Legislative Assembly, which was made up of both elected and nominated members. Um, and as leader of the majority party, Panton ought to have been able to have a say uh, in who these three nominated members were. However, Rose, the Commissioner, um, chose three new members who were all rivals of Panton and uh, greatly opposed his politics. As a result, when it came to electing members to the Executive Council, uh, Panton was not chosen. And so this tactical move uh, by Commissioner Rose ensured that Panton and his party, the NDP, um, did not gain power in the Executive Council, um, even though they had gained the, the most seats in the election, 
Um, and so they did not have the political power to implement any policies which would either lead Cayman towards uh, greater self-government um, or challenge the power of the merchant elite. As a result, Panton resigned um, and he tried to call a second election, uh, but he was unsuccessful in this attempt. And this really signalled the end of his political ambitions um, and subsequently in the next elections, the NDP, his party, um, really just disintegrated as a political force. Um, and this is something that's happened since in the Cayman Islands uh, throughout the rest of the 20th century. Um, there were no formal political parties um, and it's only really been in the 21st century that party politics has uh, come back since the 1960s. So um, thus this suppression of the NDP by Commissioner Rose and the merchants marked a real turning point in the quest for self-government in the Cayman Islands. Caymanian historian Roy Bodden um, has pointed out the inefficacy of Panton's actions in response to this situation. Um, Eric Williams, uh, pictured here, um, in fact encountered a similar issue um, in Trinidad and Tobago in 1956, um, and he was found he was not permitted a say in the nominations of members to the Legislative Council. Uh, he then complained to the Secretary of State for the Colonies, who overruled the Governor, um, and this helped to facilitate a majority for uh, Williams's party, uh, the People's National Movement. So it's really surprising that Panton did not seek this kind of option, um, but perhaps this demonstrates his understandable unwillingness uh, to work within uh, the British colonial system at the time. Um, and I should say this is Ormond Panton here, uh, the leader of the NDP. It's worth pausing here um, to consider political developments in the Bahamas, um, because there are some interesting similarities. Uh, before the 1950s, um, the Bahamas had a similar political environment in that there was an elite group of white businessmen um, who controlled the Legislative Council. However, in 1967, uh, the Progressive Liberal Party, the PLP, under Lyndon Pindling, managed to um, establish a black majority government for the first time. Uh, the PLP then went on to move the Bahamas gradually towards independence uh, in 1973. So really these striking similarities uh, between the Cayman Islands and the Bahamas in the first half of the 20th century poses the question of whether perhaps Panton um, could have led Cayman certainly to a greater level of self-government or perhaps independence in the 1960s um, had his legitimate claim to control the Executive Council not been blocked. Um, and this turning point, I think, is crucial to understanding decolonisation in the Cayman Islands. Looking now at Martinique, uh, the dominance of the white planter class was also very influential in the 20th century, uh, in terms of the political developments. The uh, well-established group um, of, white of white planters uh, descended from plantation owners during the era of slavery, uh, owned a majority of the island's economy throughout the 20th century. The Beke, uh, as they were known, used their economic power to exercise a certain degree of political influence. During slavery, the plantation owners um, held a strong grip on local politics, However, after abolition in 1848, a mixed-race middle class had developed um, which was increasingly involved in local politics. As certain citizenship rights were extended to black Antillians, 
the domination of the white uh, planter class in the political sphere somewhat diminished. However, um, as many historians of the French Antilles have commented, have commented, the Beke have had um, have been remarkably persistent and successful in maintaining their power, wealth, and influence well into the 21st century. Um, and there's a really interesting documentary in French um, called The Last Masters of Martinique, which was made um, in the last 10 years um, that interviews the Beke and really looks um, at this continuation and maintenance of power into the 21st century. So once the departmentalisation law was passed in 1946, this group successfully campaigned uh, to delay the extension of social benefits to Antillean citizens. Since the 1940s, the Beke have adeptly taken advantage of the intervention of the French state in the Caribbean, particularly in terms of the transfer of funds for development. They've benefited from the campaigning of both right-wing and left-wing politicians, um, and they've really made the most of subsidies designed to protect and improve the agricultural industry. And like other economic elites in the Caribbean, um, such as Jamaica and Barbados, um, their power, um, has, their control of land has really been instrumental um, in their maintenance of power and influence. Since departmentalization, they've opposed any major changes to political status uh, that would upset their position and possibly jeopardize uh, the benefits that they gained from the French state. Uh, their power was well established in Martinique, uh, but they also had a degree of influence in Guadeloupe as well. And uh, in the British Virgin Islands, the expelling of the white plantation owners in the 19th century, um, as I mentioned before, meant that the BVI, uh, BVI society developed as a relatively egalitarian group of farmers and fishermen, most of whom owned their own land. With economic hardship in the post-emancipation era, many BVI islanders migrated for work um, and for work um, and those who remained tended to work on their own farms. As a result, people were inclined to have a more individualistic outlook, um, and the forms of collective action um, that developed into labour unions elsewhere uh, never really took hold in the BVI. Furthermore, uh, the stark racial inequality apparent in other islands was mostly absent uh, once the plantation owners had left, um, and this removed the visible political adversary that could have prompted the emergence of political party activity. Instead, BVI politicians in the decades after the Second World War focused on economic development rather than political status. Turning now to look at independence movements um, and colonial interventions in independence movements, I'm going to talk about Guadeloupe first. Uh, so both Martinique and Guadeloupe had independence movements in the 1960s, 70s and 80s. Um, and this continued afterwards, but as I've said, I, um, I just look up to 1980. Um, these movements were monitored and repressed by the French state. Uh, looking specifically at Guadeloupe, the first group to explicitly call for Guadeloupian independence was the National Organisation Group of Guadeloupe, uh, known as GONG, uh, and they were established in 1963. Gong's leader, Pierre Santon, um, he's pictured uh, just in the middle of this picture. 
Um, he was a doctor whose nationalist beliefs um, had developed while he was a student in Paris, involved in several international anti-colonial student organisations. Gong attracted students, Guadeloupean workers uh, based in mainland France, um, and also conscientious objectors uh, who had refused to fight in the Algerian war. It was a Marxist organisation which had Maoist leanings, um, and it drew inspiration from other, um, it drew inspiration from Cuban Revolution and the war in Vietnam. And like other youth and student protest movements in the 1960s, Gong focused on the Vietnam War uh, as the embodiment of a revolutionary struggle against imperialism. Uh, and this is their journal here um, that they used to, um, they tried to distribute in Guadeloupe um, to, uh, to spread their message. The leaders of Gong uh, were acutely aware of the risks of working openly, um, and this was because in 1961, um, a Martinican group, the Martinican Anti-Colonial Youth Organization, um, were swiftly arrested uh, when they tried to become more open and more vocal um, about uh, Martinican independence. As a result, Gong sought to emulate Algerian and Vietnamese revolutionary tactics. They created cells of activists um, in the main French cities um, and they operated covertly. The group focused mostly on propaganda, um, which, as you can see here, um, and they smuggled this nationalist material into Guadeloupe uh, Gong was in direct contact with political figures around the world, um, so figures in China, Belgium, Guinea, Albania, Egypt, Vietnam, and most significantly, Algeria. By 1966, uh, Gong had become more active in the Caribbean, uh, and members attended the Tricontinental Conference in Havana, and they successfully pushed forward a resolution uh, for Guadeloupe's right to national independence. And this was uh, a really significant success for Gong. Uh, they gained legitimacy and recognition on an international stage. However, this resolution was very controversial <coughs> among the left in Guadeloupe. Um, outright independence was very much a contentious and radical standpoint, uh, even for anti-colonial politicians and activists. The Guadeloupean Communist Party, for example... Uh, which dominated local politics in the 1960s, pursued a pro-autonomy rather than pro-independence line. Um, and these divisions among le left-wing activists uh, really hampered and impeded the development of a united front of nationalists in Guadeloupe. And the security services were able to exploit these divisions um, in order to undermine Gong and their activities. In 1967... Gong had uh, become more active in Guadeloupe and had gained a degree of uh, popularity and notoriety among the disenfranchised youth in the islands. However, this also brought uh, greater scrutiny from the security services. In the end, it was a violent clash between protesters and the police that um, gave the state an opportunity to crack down on Gong's activities. So on the 26th of May, 1967, French police opened fire on striking workers in Pointe-à-Pitre, uh, which is the main city in the centre of Guadeloupe. Over the following 48 hours, it's estimated that somewhere between 8 and 200 people were killed in clashes between protesters and the police. Initially, French officials announced that 8 people had died, um, and this is still um, the, um, 
the only figure that can... Uh, eight is the only number of people that can be officially confirmed um, as having died during the protests. However, uh, historians have cast doubt on this figure because it appears not to take into account the level of violence over 48 hours, the number of disappearances, um, and also, crucially, the fact that families feared coming forwards to report um, deaths and disappearances to the authorities. The French government blamed this entire episode and the unrest on Gong. Um, this incident, however, received very little coverage in France at the time, um, and it remains a really controversial issue in Guadeloupe. Crucial archives on the subject remain closed, uh, making it very difficult to ascertain who exactly was responsible for the violence. Um, there was a recent independent commission of inquiry that looked into the events. Um, they confirmed that though it's still difficult to confirm the exact number of deaths um, and also to confirm who was in individually responsible, um, they have stated that May 67 was, quote, a massacre during a protest, knowingly ordered on the ground and approved by the government under the presidency of General de Gaulle, end quote. Immediately after um, the uh, violence, the French police began arresting uh, suspected Guadeloupian nationalists. Um, independence activists were round up, rounded up both in Guadeloupe and in Paris, as many of them were based in Paris. Um, they were put on trial the following year for threatening the territorial integrity of France. Um, unlike the massacre in May 1967, this trial received a huge amount of coverage, of media coverage in France. Um, there were student campaigns uh, campaigning for the release of the activists. Um, and this picture here at the top um, is, um, is some of the protests that took, pla took place in France at the time. Um, and the second photo that you see here um, is the 18 Guadeloupe nationalists um, who were put on trial in 1968. Um, and another uh, point to make is that this came just a couple of months before May 1968 in France, so uh, really a turning point in France's history. This trial lasted from the 19th of February to the 1st of March, um, and the famous Martinican intellectual and author of Discourse on Colonialism, Aimé Césaire, spoke in favour of the defendants. Uh, though he had played a crucial role in negotiating departmentalisation back in 1946, he had become very critical of the continuing inequality between France and the overseas departments. Césaire began his court statement arguing that, quote, there is no doubt that the French Antilles are de facto colonies, end quote. Another person who testified in support uh, of the 18 Guadeloupians was Jean-Paul Sartre, um, he argued, quote, this trial proves precisely that our Guadeloupian friends do not have the same rights as French people from France and that consequently they are not French, end quote. Whilst the prosecution during the trial offered some evidence uh, that Gong had distributed propaganda in Guadeloupe uh, that was pro-independence um, and they focused very much on uh, Gong's journal, uh, they were unable to provide any link uh, to uh, link Gong to the violence of the previous year. Ultimately, however, six men um, from uh, the 18 who were on trial were given three to four years in prison uh, for the dangerous threat that they posed to the French Republic, and uh, the rest uh, were um, the other 12 were acquitted. Um, this really marked the end of Gong's activities as their key members were all in prison. 
Um, and the events of 1967 had provided a very good excuse for French authorities to clamp down on this nascent nationalist movement in Guadeloupe. Undoubtedly, the psychological impact uh, of the Algerian war made France more determined to hold on to Martinique and Guadeloupe, and it helped to fuel this repression of independence activists. Turning to the British Caribbean, in the 1960s, um, officially, Britain claimed that it was happy to arrange self-government and independence with any territory who wished to do so. In reality, however, certain British officials undermined this policy. The administrators of the BVI in the 1960s and 1970s blocked calls for greater autonomy, um, and they advised the FCO that it would be wise to ignore anyone advocating independence. For example, um, in his outgoing report in 1967, um, Administrator Stavely expressed the hope that British sovereignty would not only be maintained in the British Virgin Islands, uh, but that the British influence would be increased. He suggested that while there appeared to be a less strong connection to Britishness and to the Queen uh, among the younger generation in the Virgin Islands, um, the connection with Britain ought to be strengthened. He argued that, quote, the British Virgin Islands will be best off if they stay British, end quote. Um, Administrator Thompson, who was the administrator after Stavely, echoed these sentiments um, in his reports as administrator. Uh, these comments really contradicted, contradicted official British policy, um, and it contradicted the position that the administrators themselves expressed to be the islanders. Um, for example, in 1969, in a speech to the Legislative Assembly in the Virgin Islands, Administrator Thompson claimed, quote, Britain continues to adhere to the cardinal policy that the wishes of the people concerned must be the main guide to action, end quote. And these British administra administrators had a considerable degree of power and influence um, in local debates um, and in the direction of developments um, which uh, they could influence according to their beliefs rather than official policy. Um, so, in conclusion, there are many aspects to the decolonisation in these territories that highlight their connection <coughs> to the rest of the Caribbean and to international events as well. Migrating for work or study was commonplace, um, and many of those involved in local political debates and protest movements have been influenced by their experiences abroad. The more violent anti-colonial struggles, uh, like Cuba and Algeria, influenced both activists and colonial governments as well. This was particularly evident in the French Antilles, where independence movements were greatly inspired by other revolutionary organisations. However, groups like Gong found themselves subject to increasing levels of surveillance and repression as a result of the French state's um, real uh, determination not to allow events in Algeria to be replicated. In the Cayman Islands, the merchant elite were very concerned about developments in Jamaica uh, and they made uh, decisions about <coughs> the future in response to this. Likewise, in the BVI, the very close relationship with the US Virgin Islands uh, considerably shaped local political debates. Nonetheless, um, this close relationship that the BVI had to the US Virgin Islands separated it from the rest of the Eastern Caribbean and it encouraged BVI politicians to opt out of the West Indies Federation. Furthermore, 
the way that the colonial power, either Britain or France, was viewed in these territories was quite particular to local circumstances. So in Cayman and the BBI, Britain was a relatively distant presence for much of the colonial era. Um, and uh, due to their status as uh, dependencies of colonies rather than colonies themselves. As a result, discontent with colonial rule was much more likely to be associated with the administrations in the other Caribbean islands, um, so Jamaica <coughs> and Northern Islands, rather than with Britain itself. This changed in the 1960s, once both Cayman and BPI had become crown colonies and had that direct link to Britain. In Martinique and Guadeloupe, uh, Antillean politicians considered the white planter elite uh, as the principal agents of colonialism rather than France itself. Um, and this attitude is really captured in a 1951 article, uh, which is from a Martinican communist newspaper. Um, and it claimed, quote, Martinicans can count on the people of France, our surest ally, which is not to be confused with the colonialist bandits who govern here in the name of France. End quote. Though these territories have mostly been left out of the narrative of global decolonisation, the role of the mobile middle classes can help to reveal the ways in which they are intimately connected to decolonisation in other post-colonial states. Travelling to metropolitan centres in London, New York, Paris, uh, often as students, islanders from these territories participated in both the interwar and post-war networks um, of anti-colonial activism. They were greatly influenced uh, by these international debates about anti-colonialism and decolonisation. However, their debates um, about their island's political status took place within a particular bubble of island society. So they applied these uh, anti-colonial ideas to their situation and envisaged a future which remained, for the moment, uh, tied to the colonial power. Positioning these local politicians, uh, activists and intellectuals as both interconnected to wider anti-colonial debates uh, and yet acting in a somewhat separate island society helps us to understand how these islands negotiated a decolonisation without independence. It's these seeming contradictions that really underscore the particular nature of decolonisation history in non-sovereign states. Evidently, there are a variety of factors which influence decolonisation, um, and this paper has demonstrated that it's far more complex than the suggestion that these territories simply never wanted independence. Including the non-sovereign states in our narrative of 20th century decolonisation encourages us to approach the subject of decolonisation, um, as historian Frederick Cooper has advocated, by analysing events from the perspective of not seeing independence as inevitable. The histories of the islands are important for challenging our preconceptions about decolonisation and the so-called post-colonial world. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Grace, for that historical, geographical sweep and for raising this uh, sort of brain... Uh, uh, tangling issue of ways in which you can be anti-colonial without being pro-independence. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to throw it out for questions from the floor. Gareth, and stand up for Well, thank you very much, thanks. It's really interesting. Um, and I'm really interested in...